This podcast is shareable. Shareable is the podcast fueled entirely by curiosity. Every episode features exciting guests who share valuable advice and insights, how-to guides, and practical takeaways. Join me as I explore the awe-inspiring stories about overcoming the odds, the secret formulas that gave each guest their unique superpower, and the moments that remind us of our shared humanity. Get ready to be excited, delighted, and possibly even astonished, because this podcast is shareable. My guest is Robin Dreek. Y'all know who Robin Dreek is? Shame on you. Robin Dreek is amazing. He's the author of The Code of Trust and Sizing People Up. He was a former head of the FBI counterintelligence program, and he is an expert on how to build trust. This is an episode you are definitely not going to want to miss. Robin and I could absolutely do like a six-hour episode, uh, and you can hear that in, in the episode that like, it's just a naturally great free-flowing conversation, but we get so deep into his backstory, how he came to understand the importance of trust, and a lot of the different things that you're going to need to know in order to build trust and why that matters in business and really in life. So if you're not doing anything, and if you haven't yet subscribed to Shareable, may I suggest that you do, because this episode with Robin Dreek is, among many other things, Shareable. Welcome back to Shareable. Robin, it is nice to have you here. Thank you for joining me. Jeff, it is an exciting day because I get to chat with you. I've been looking forward to this for a long time because you are one of the most busiest men I know, putting out so much phenomenal content for the world, which takes an immense amount of time. So I appreciate the opportunity to chat. Thank you. And I always appreciate, you know, when whenever you like reply to one of my newsletters or something and um and and you give me that call out of like, wow, you do so much. It's it's nice because like I just kind of do my thing and I don't really I don't stop and think about it. And that kind of that external validation, it's uh it's really meaningful. It means a lot coming from you because I respect the depth of your work. I feel like I I oftentimes can do very uh very broad. I do a lot of things. I there's a lot of quantity. Um and I th- and I think there's quality there for sure. I I just think that the depth of the work that you've put out, the body of work and and the sort of the way you hammer away at this idea of trust uh, is is admirable. And I and I wish to have the focus that you have. Um, and I'm looking forward to talking to you all about that stuff today. So thanks for coming on the show. And, and again, thanks for, you know, just the, the relationship that you and I have built over uh, the time that we the short time we've known each other. Uh, it is meaningful to me when you pass along things like that. I'm, I'm just humbled by your words, Jeff. That is kind and generous, as I always say with anything you put out, because I always think of you as, yes, you have this breadth of work, so you go wide, but for some reason, you have this ability to go deep when you go wide. I've never seen anyone be able to do that, so yeah. Thank you. Kudos Thank to you. you. <laughs> All right, man. Well, I'm going to start you out with the big question, the big question that I like to ask everyone, and I am profoundly interested to hear your answer to this, uh, just being as familiar with your work as I am, but what is the dent you wish to make in the universe? What, why are you here? What a great question. That's an evolving question for all of us, isn't it? Yeah. As of right now, <laughs> my dent I want to make in the universe is really to make an impact with my children and the people I touch with just how to make a great, genuine, deep connection with deep empathy, deep understanding so that people can leave 
lead their best lives they can. I love it. Yeah. And to me, it's, it comes down to trust and I'll kind of cornerstone that with what makes me happy because I think that's really a cornerstone of the dent I want to make is, is, is live a happy life. And to me, a happy life is very, very simply having a great conversation. Remind me when we're all done with this and I'm putting this right here on the recording, but I have got to introduce you if you don't already know Lou Diamond. Do you yes. know Lou Diamond? Do you know Lou Diamond? Uh, I, I've been on his show. Um, have you? Okay. Yeah. I need I haven't to heard be on, you on his show, show again or I need to have him on mine. I'd love to have him. He is a Oh, yeah. You guys, guy. I mean, like you're just both attacking the the how to have deeper, better, more enriching relationships and conversations, but oh from gosh. slightly different angles, but with so much overlap that I just feel like bringing yeah. those two things together, it's going to be like smashing two hydrogen atoms together. <laughs> it's be amazing. Um, although I don't know if smashing them together is always me. Anyway, that's besides the point. Um, awesome. So I figured it was going to be something like that. And I, I want to spend today's episode really digging into that. I want to, I want to know more about your story. I don't think that's a thing that we've really had enough time to talk about, but I'm really interested in your story of how this came about. Um, sort of the, the, the superhero conversation, nature, nurture, like were you, you know, were you born on Krypton and it's just the yellow sun that it gives you energy or was something traumatic happened and that changed your, but we'll, we'll get into all that, but I need to start with the shareables, which is just to give some practical, quick value to those listening, some things that you recommend that you're willing to share with people that they can then go and take that away and do stuff. So there are four quick rapid fire questions, just some things that you recommend that I want you to pass along. So, uh, you ready for those? You good? I'm ready. Let's go. All right. So the first one is what's something you've read recently that you think people should read? Or it could be it doesn't have to be recently, but what's something that you think people should read that you've read? I gave this a lot of thought. And I'm gonna say Victor Frankel's Man Search for Me. Awesome. I have that on my uh on my Audible at the moment. Uh, it, it is, is in it, it is in my queue. I, I usually have before we got rolling, we were talking about having yeah. categories of books. I'll usually have like a philosophy, spirituality, meaning, existence yep. sort of category. I'll have Me like too. a gender, race, society sort of uh, category. I'll have like a business one and then just a hodgepodge of things. So that one's, it's been on my list for a while. I've got a bunch of his uh, books, Victor Frankel. Uh, there was like an Audible sale on them and I was like, oh, I'm gonna <laughs> That's, so I, I listened to it on Audible. Yes. Yeah. All right. Good stuff. <laughs> Love it. All right. Um, so speaking of which, actually, what is something that you think everyone should listen to? It could be an audio book if you want. It could be a, a really kick-ass song, a kick-ass album album that you've listened to cover to cover um anything that is is a delight for someone's ears what's something you'd recommend for them because i'm a consumer of books and i consume them on audible i'm going to go back to that again <laughs> because i can cover more ground i'm going to go with you know and, and and this is a rough one all these questions are rough because there's so many great there's so much great content out there including your book which is phenomenal content but i'm going to go with ryan holiday's ego is the enemy dynamite Dynamite. Because because ego is really the thing that gets in our way of making these connections and having these great conversations. Because inevitably, if we don't have the repetitions in or the reps in, we're going to keep centering back on ourselves and it's going to start deflating the conversation. So I think ego is the enemy is a fantastic way. It's also a great book on stoicism, which I, I, I love, including with the Taoism and Buddhism, you know, all these self-awareness books. Yes. I love it. Oh my God. I, I didn't write a note down about this. I'm going to have to put one down. I would love to talk to you about the intersection of ego and trust. And mm. I think we'll have to talk about that a bit later on. Um, all right. So something that people should watch, what's something people should watch. It could be a Netflix show, a Hulu show. It could be a YouTube video, a Ted talk, anything that you think is worth uh, watching. That's, that's uh, a beauty for someone's eyes. Another fantastically challenging question because of one, I don't watch a huge amount of TV. 
Mm-hmm. And then I asked myself, what to, what have I watched repeatedly throughout my life that I just keep watching and love? And this is going to, it's going to be a funny one, but I'm going to explain it in a second with it. And that is the movie, The Martian. Is that the, uh, is The Martian the uh, Matt Damon one? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And so the book, the original book by Andy Weir is a fantastic book. And even, but the movie was a great, a great rendition of it. And here's why. So Matt Damon, who plays a stranded astronaut on Mars, he has resilience, self-reliance, the utmost optimism. He's a problem solver. He's funny. He's self-deprecating. He's humorous. I mean, he's got all the traits that make a successful human being because he just solves problems. And I just, it's always upbeat. It's funny. There's challenges. It's, it's, and I'm also a lover of space because it's exploration and the future and all it it encompasses so much. I, I think that's probably why I've watched it so many times. And there's a few movies I've watched a lot, but that's probably up there. And I I love the character. I got to tell you, your recommendation, just put it on the list because it wasn't on my list. Um, But I'm going to put it on my list. I remember when it came out and I thought, should I see that? I don't know. I don't know. Matt, maybe I was just like a little little, uh, burned out on Matt Damon at the moment. (laughs) Um, But I I didn't have it on my list. I was kind of like, oh, maybe one day. But your recommendation, I'm going to add it to my list. It's a hoot. Um, The great thing, too, is Andy Weir, who wrote it, and he also wrote the, uh, the Hail Mary project, which is right behind me. He came out with that in the last year or two. He is a scientist that writes. Mm hmm. And the, the, so The Martian, he self-published first, and it was such a hit that it was picked up by a publisher and got the movie rights. But he is such a great author because it's not hooky-fooky science. It's real. Yeah. A lot of it is very real science, which if you are a science fiction aficionado or a lover of all things moving outside our atmosphere, uh, he does a great job of it. So I love this. That's why I like – um, I've, I've heard that the show The Expanse – is very scientifically accurate. And I just enjoyed the show to begin with because we're right. not like, you know, interspatial politics and things like that. But um, <laughs> I always appreciate when um, when you're watching something that's science fiction that it is actually accurate because it's always frustrating. You're like, oh, and then and you find it later on. Well, that can never happen. Yeah, like, um, I, so like that, I love Star Wars, but yeah, come on. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, final question then is, uh, what, what's something you've learned recently that you think is interesting and you want to pass along something that, you know, I, I find myself Googling things all the time. I'm always following the rabbit hole of, and breadcrumbs of, uh, of what's going on in Wikipedia. Like something catches my eye. I think of a thing, I go learn about it. And I'm always interested in that experience for other people. So what's something you've learned recently that you think is interesting and worth sharing with people? Yeah, this is, this is a, such a phenomenal question because this is, this is a great area. What I've really learned in the last probably year that's really been highlighted more than anything else is the power and impact of curiosity. It is profound. The There's a couple biographies I read this past year that were really good. Um, Leonardo da Vinci's, I read Benjamin Franklin. I'm in the middle of Einstein right now. And each one of these individuals that so well known in history were profoundly curious and they generally had amazing reputations because they were non-judgmentally curious or discerningly curious mm-hmm. because they didn't they did their best not to place their own biases on anything that they were consuming they just were curious about it now when you take that that that's one aspect of curiosity and then i overlaid that with what i do as 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 a human interactor and trying to have a great conversation 
I saw this interesting intersection that has that I've really discovered is been powerful for making connections. And that is people, they say you need to be curious about other people in order to have empathy, to see the world through their perspective. And yes, but there's an element of curiosity that I found I was doing because I started getting reps in not nearly as much as you, but doing podcasting interviews where mm -hmm. you're really focused, you let go of your entire agenda to become the other person, to see the world through their optic and lens. And I start, found myself starting to have curiosity, yes, about them, but more about what they say, the words they're saying, word choices, things that deviate from a pattern, an unusual word, an unusual statement, an unusual phrase. I became curious about the things people were saying. And it makes for a great conversation because it just, you become curious. I mean, it's just amazing. People say the most amazing things. And that I have found is my thing this, that I've discovered recently is curiosity about the words that people say. I absolutely love that. And it intersects with some of the things that I either was reading about this year or last year. I get confused sometimes about my reading list, but Me I too. read a lot about uh, Wittgenstein, the philosopher who talked about the idea that like kind of all language is personal, right? That like mm. we have this thing called language, but it's your understanding of the words that you're using. And we have sort of these common understandings, but you can never really truly. It's like at, at the base level, it's like when I see red, do you see red the way I see red? Right. Same idea, right? Right. Except in words. So when somebody uses a particular word, the idea of, of asking them that, that amazing coaching question of, what do you mean by that? Right. What? When you say that, what do you mean by that? Um, and I, I just love the idea of being curious, not just about the substance of what they say, but also the character and the flavor and the, the way that they talk about that idea. Yeah. I, I was on a podcast uh, a couple of weeks ago. And I remember the host was asking me, or we're talking about the same kind of concept. And he said, mentioned said about, you know, someone having a pair of tan socks, something so benign as tan socks. And he goes, well, where do you go for that? I go, why did you notice they were tan? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like tan. I mean, it's like, wow, you said not just socks, you said tan socks. That's interesting. You noticed tan. As, as the color, I said, what made that stand out to you in that moment? So there and therein lies a whole divergence of a conversation um, yeah. that you can spurn from someone just instead of saying just socks, they said tan socks. Well, that's interesting. You said tan. And also the context of like the person that's saying it, right? So like if you're someone that works in fashion, when you notice tan socks, that context actually changes oh, yeah. to notice that. And also when you say tan instead of beige or any other color, that actually is a whole other thing. Yeah, no, yes, I'm, it's I'm super interested. Isn't it? no, it's, it's like you could go down so many different paths of this one singular idea of the context of what people say, uh, the context of the person that's saying it, the words that they use, the things that they notice. It is kind of fascinating. I've, I read something, it's like the human... Uh, Humans take in something like 11 million bits of information per second, but we can only retain like 40 or something like that. I, I my numbers might be wrong. If you like, don't don't flame me in the comments of this. But like, um, I've read that that's kind of what's going on, and that means that out of that 11 million, we are noticing such a small number of things. And then when we communicate, we're choosing amongst all the different thoughts we have of the things to share. You, you, that's such a great phenomenal point you're making because out of all that data coming in, and this is where the curiosity about what people say is where that intersection is because 
when you let go of your agenda, because I know one of the greatest challenges people have that are trying to have a great conversation is what do I say? What, how do I keep a conversation going? And I, now I'm looking, I'm saying, how can you not keep a conversation going if you're listening and curious about what they're saying? Just, just two words, tan socks. And between you and I, we have all these different rabbit holes you want to go down because you're like, oh, what made you say tan socks? What made you even notice socks? At what point in your life were you, what was the spark that made you fascinated by maybe what people are wearing? You know, so then you start the way back clock going, you start, where did you grow up? You know, who are your parents? I mean, all these things start mushrooming from two words, tan socks. Yeah, it's I crazy. love it because I, <laughs> I, I mean, we've I think we may have even like in passing touched on this briefly, but I'm such a big fan of curiosity as a uh, as a concept. I've often said that the secret to my podcast is curiosity. I literally just bring people on that I think are interesting. And then I'm like, I get an hour with you. I'm just gonna ask you whatever I want. Right. Let's just go down whatever rabbit hole we can. Absolutely. And I, and I really appreciate this because I think this will nicely dovetail into talking about your area of expertise, your background, things like that. So, you know, for those that don't know you, you are a, what I would consider, and this is my words, not yours, but I consider you to be the, the world's most foremost expert on the concept of trust. To 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 codify and take the idea of trust and break it down the way that you have in your work and make it something tangible and make it something that uh, what I what I really appreciate about you is you are very forthright in saying where the line is with manipulation versus actual genuine trust building. And I really appreciate that. So this is this is partly why you're here, aside from the fact that I just love talking to you. So if we're going to talk about trust today, we're going to talk about it potentially in a way that maybe you haven't talked about it before. We're going to talk about it in a way where the shareable audience can gain something really valuable. Where do we start? What What's the important thing for people to know about trust? Should we define it? Should we go down a particular path? I'm going to let you kind of choose our starting point here. Sure. Trust is, first, it's the bedrock for everything in life because everything in life requires a relationship and all relationships that are going to be healthy require trust. A lot of cultural norms these days will think that trust comes down to some surface things like likability or someone, we have aligned morals, we have aligned ethics. Eh, okay, I'm not saying, I, I won't say that all these things don't play into it for individuals, but at the core to me, there's really two massive elements for trust. One is what I wrote about in my last book, and that is uh, predictability. Predictability, and because it dovetails into the, into the real super core of it, predictability means that I can reasonably know what someone's going to do in every single situation so that I can manage my expectations, because when I can manage my expectations, we're going to have a healthy relationship, healthy relationships, trust, and we can move forward in life and in whatever direction we want to move in. But that predictable behavior, which is an element of it, gives us the most important thing that we seek as human beings, and that is a feeling of safety. Trust equates to feeling safe. And so if someone, if you're wanting to build trust with someone, ask yourself, what do they need from their perspective, from their optic, from their culture, their demographics, their ethnicity, all these elements of them, which is empathy, what do they need from me? To feel safe. That's it. It is really that simple. Make people feel safe. Well, not make. Make is about me. Allow people to feel safe. Inspire them to by the actions that you're providing them based on you understanding them and where they start from. 
And so much of what we've already covered just in, in our short time together here today really perfectly encapsulates that. If you are curious and when you're curious, you're naturally going to listen to people. And then when you listen to them and you're curious about them and you really seek to understand them, then you have a better position, a better vantage point to understand what course of action you need to take to create the environment where someone can feel safe. So all of those things really nicely, beautifully dovetail in together. So your background, some of your background is very, and I read it in the intro today, and some people know you from, from the work that you've done. And I know you've spent a lot of time out in the world because I've watched a lot of you know, hours of footage of you talking about these things. So I know your professional background, you know, counterintelligence, recruiting spies, you know, working with Marine, all the things you've done. I actually want to go back further. I want to better understand what preceded this because it's not like, you know, and, and in reading your book, you talk a little bit about how, how you kind of failed at the start of what you were doing professionally in, in, uh, in the FBI and in the army and dealing with building trust in those things. I actually want to go back way, 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 way further. Robin, the kid, Robin, the person who grew up, school, things like that. What At what point did it occur to you, earliest memory, that relationships were important, that trust had some important function there, that draw connect the dot for me prior to the start of the official start of the work. Connect the dot for me. Help me understand how you got here. The understanding of the importance of relationships, of trust, that that conscious understanding didn't happen for decades. It wasn't until I started having some awareness of humbling moments that I created where I started understanding that the world was impacting the way it was around me because of my behavior that I started starting to put two to two together. And that really started happening a little bit at the Naval Academy, Marine Corps, definitely FBI more today, much more so. But yes, who we all are as human beings is forged in our younger years. There hasn't been anyone I've talked to and interviewed or chatted with in any capacity that isn't doing work today as long as it's work that fulfills them that wasn't sparked by the by the earliest years in their lives. And a lot of, I don't, here's another almost allism, at least everyone I've interacted with, we've all faced trauma from varying degrees, but from our own perspective as individuals, we've all had something that we went through, we experienced, we gained from at some point, whether in the moment or decades later, maybe even never. But we've all faced challenges that forged us at those early years. For me, I was an only child, an only child of two people without college educations, who my parents' parents never... I was the first one that went to college in any, in any family on both trees. And living in an area in about an hour and a half north of New York City was challenging because everyone around me, their Families had money. I didn't understand we didn't have money, except the fact that we didn't have money. And when you're an only child, the first thing that formed me as an only child was I craved being liked and fitting in. So that was the first traumatic thing. And being bullied traumatically because, I mean, I was in I was in fist fights at the bus stop every day. 
because you know the blonde hair blue-eyed kid with the name robin you know it's kind of like that uh song by johnny cash a man named sue there you go um you are going to get bullied and you have a choice stand up to it or not stand up to it i chose to stand up to it because i don't know it was just my my nature so i stood up to the bullies and i still have scars on my knuckles from all the fights i was in where the people would circle you and, and do that so being liked and being accepted was a forging thing in my life that's why i love a great relationship and i love great conversations the second thing that forged me was the in the area of self-reliance resilience and entrepreneurship and that was at nine years old, my grandmother had passed away. And my grandmother, who worked as a as a, a part-time accountant station, and my grandfather, who was a handyman and a parks and rec guy with a ninth grade education, they were slipping my mother some money and they would they were the ones that bought my school clothes. My grandmother passed away. All that little extra cash coming in stopped. And so I remember my mother came to me during the summer and said, uh, we have no money for school clothes this year because your grandmother passed away. I was nine years old going to middle school. And this is an important years of your life when you think the entire world is looking at you. You're wanting to be liked and fit in. And in order to fit in at that age in the late 80s or early, I mean, late late 70s, early 80s, it was, I remember very vividly what I had to have. And I remember the price tag on it. I needed a pair of Lee jeans with a Lee patch on the back. I need a pair of Nike sneakers or running shoes, whatever you call them, depends on part of the world you're in. And I need an Adidas t-shirt, preferably red with white lettering and a blue hoodie sweatshirt. That would cost me $60 for those things. And so my mother said, we have no money. I said, that's it. I'm done with you. I'm going to work. I hand wrote flyers and I put them around in the neighborhood and I started doing manual labor. Matter of fact, it's interesting. I, I mentioned Victor Frankel and the man's search for meaning. He was a survivor of the Holocaust in a concentration camp. The, my first people I worked for planting Pacassandra for 10 cents a plant in their yard were my neighbors across the street. They were uh, Their name is the Abrahams. They were both Holocaust survivors that lost all their families and married each other after they found each other after World War II. That was... Uh, I wish I knew back then what I knew now about the questions and the knowledge I would have seeped from them, but they're very kind and generous people. And so they gave me my first job. So I became self-reliant. I became an entrepreneur and I had a good pair of jeans, sneakers, t-shirt and hoodie. And I remember after two weeks of wearing the same outfit, people started saying, is that the only thing you wear? I said, nope, back to work, earning more money to do more. So that's where it was all forged. Which gave me a lot of people will take these instances in life and become have get a victim mentality. Woe is me, and I also alcoholism ran ran in our family, so that was a huge factor in in all this. Also, the other sense of self reliance I almost forgot when my parents have never owned a home; we've rented their their entire lives. They still rent. And I was the only house that was renting. It was a single family home, two bedroom, galley kitchen, one bathroom, no insulation because it was a summer home that was now being rented out in the area I lived in. And it was a crawl space basement. And winters in that part of New York were stinking cold back in the 70s and 80s. And I remember one year our furnace broke, fell off the, fell off the 
overhang under the crawl space. And the landlord told my parents that she couldn't afford a new furnace without raising the rent. Well, my parents couldn't afford a rent raise. And so they took their $400 they had, they installed a wood burning stove. And so we heated our house all by wood. And let me tell you, the first winter that we're splitting wood, we ran out in January. And so, at, so this was in seventh grade. I was out splitting wood all night long trying to keep the house warm. And when you wake up in the morning to try to go to school and you take a hairdryer to unfrost the doors because all the condensation in the house on the inside would freeze because the inside of the house was below freezing when you wake up in the morning before the fire got going, that makes you resilient and self-reliant. And so that's where it all started to be forged. It is so fascinating that you and I have such a natural flow of conversation. We have so many overlapping values. You know, I write the lovable leader, you write the code of trust, you know, before I had put out the lovable leader, both immense interest in uh, care, in trust, in creating safety. And so many of our formative years and experiences are also steeped in similar types of trauma and similar needs at that time. It's so interesting that safety becomes a crucial thing in, in what you're trying to do when your formative years had so little safety, actual, actual violence and such. Yeah. And I remember also from one of our previous conversations, you talked about being a very competitive person early in your life and, and coming to grips with that and dealing with that later in life as, as you've kind of learned to put that to the side and center other people in conversations. Um, I'm curious, what were some of those early kind of, um, were some of those things you mentioned sort of at the beginning of your career and the failures that you alluded to? What are some of those things that happened? There's the struggles, the frustrations, the sure. things that you felt like you had to overcome in, kind of in service of the goals and where you wanted to go, right? So you had these things you wanted to do, places you wanted to go, and you had these experiences of failure and frustration. And uh, you mentioned you know, your, your own awareness of your own behavior being part of the cause. Can you kind of characterize that a bit for us and talk to us about how, how that led to the sort of discovery of, of maybe where, how you wanted to adapt and change? You bet. The, and I found that sharing that background, sharing that story, sharing trauma, being vulnerable, transparent is a great part of making a connection with someone because we've all had it. I haven't met anyone that hasn't been able to identify with some elements of that in there somewhere because that's a common common thing we all have as human beings and we've all felt unsafe at times and so that makes us a bond. So here's how that plays forward, and here's some of the challenges it posed for me, and it poses for a lot, a lot of people. So that kind of self-reliance, resilience, upbeat, solve-problem solve attitude, high-tempo, gregarious, outgoing, that is a very likable person, popular person when you're in high school because they make – I was – outgoing. I made friends. I made enemies too along the way, um, but my my friends outnumbered the people that didn't like me, luckily. And it made people want to help me, endear me to help me get in the Naval Academy, even though I had to take the SAT seven times, even get the minimum score to get an application Naval Academy. Um, so all these things played in. But all the behaviors here, where's the focus? All the focus was on me. And it wasn't you know, I always laugh, you know, I was a natural born narcissistic megalomaniac that wanted to take over the world. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a fun way to say I was in survival mode. And when you're in survival mode and you're trying to break out of a of a family system where there was no there was no no moving out of the town that everyone grew up in. My parents have lived within 50 miles of everything they've ever done. Um, same with college, all these opportunities in life. 
I wanted to break out of this. And which makes you self-reliant, resilient, all these great things. But it's the dichotomy that's out of balance because that's the dichotomy of self. Look at me, look at me, look at me. Got to got to achieve, got to achieve, got to achieve. What was out of balance was I didn't realize in order – when I was being successful, it was because I had those traits. But where the success was coming because I actually had good people in relationships and others – that's the other half of the dichotomy – that were inserting themselves in my life because they felt compelled to because of who I was, what I was going through. And I was unaware of that. I mean I knew it was going on, but I was not – cognating like you said i wasn't like the light bulb didn't switch said ah the dichotomy and so what i realized later on is that is that the dichotomy of power which is about self i was all about making me successful by by making whether it's in the marine corps or in the fbi making great cases being this being that but what it was out of balance was leadership which is about others being of service understanding what other people's challenges and struggles were and being of service to them in terms of them and what was going on in their lives, being curious about others, what they were going through instead of sharing what I was going through. Um, that's where the dichotomy started coming into balance. And once that became into balance, that's when life got much more better. So fast forward from here, you've, you've had these formative experiences. They helped to kind of the, the, the traumas of it helped to kind of create a a substrate, a, a, a foundation from which you have these skills that you later grew when you have these experiences where you had setbacks and things that didn't go your way. So you fast forward, you have your experiences uh, professionally and you develop a name for yourself as someone who begins to really understand how trust works. Mm-hmm. So I want to really focus in on that a little bit. And now you do work with, you know, you your your prior work is the highest stakes trust building stuff possible, recruiting foreign spies, right? Like, so, so yep. w- w- let's just gloss over that, the fact that like, let's just put that stake in the ground that like, that's about as hard as it gets. But now you work with executives, you work with leaders, you're coaching people, you're going through it. And I think for someone like me, who I already drink the Kool-Aid of trust, I'm like, yeah, I'm about it. I understand why it's important. How do you deal in the world of executives with two two I think challenges that I would assume you deal with. One is how do you make the case that trust is actually important? And two, in a related sense, how do you measure trust to show that it's actually working? It's funny. When I'm coaching and and working with people, people generally come in with an agenda, as you know, of things that they think they want to learn and things they need to do. And a lot of times it's People in their lives are trying to convince to think a new way or, or get a message in a better way or whatever it is. And there hasn't been a time yet where we haven't worked on them and their egos. Ego is the enemy. That's why it's it's the book I recommended. I have found the greatest hindrance for any executive or anyone that's trying to move forward is people getting in their own way. Trust comes down to their personal brand because if people trust them, and we'll talk about that, you know, that's what I'll do when I'm working with them is why so why would someone want to trust you? What behaviors are you exhibiting that people would trust? And a lot of times, probably most common thing I get is <laughs> people will hear someone say something that they know is completely wrong and it just bothers them so much they have to correct them. And how do I convince that person not to think that way or not to say something a certain way? And I'm like, okay, you can't. <laughs> First of all, let's start with that. And 
if you could, what would you get out of it? I mean, what are you looking for? Are you looking to try to correct this person and their way of thinking? Well, because of what their thing is going to affect other people negatively. I said, okay. So are you going to go around the entire world and try to correct the entire world? Is that realistic? Is that something you can actually do? I said, or what makes you so concerned about what this one person is saying? Why not be the model, the beacon of what behavior should look like? I said, as soon as you start going against someone in that way, you're forcing people to take a side. And your brand is now going to be that. So it's your choice. Again, I never say what is right or wrong to people. I said, your choice is to either be the person that people want to trust and how do, what do people trust? They trust people to make them feel safe. They don't trust people to make them feel uncomfortable. They don't trust people that make you take a side. They don't trust people that judge them or their opinions or whether they like an element of someone saying or not. I mean, so it really comes down to what do you want as your personal brand? And if trust is what you want as a personal brand, because you want to forge relationships in all these different vectors and reach out because I mean, as any business, you have to constantly expand markets into new areas because once you saturate one, it's done. You're not going to sell any more widgets or service in that market. You have to constantly expand into new markets, which means you have to be able to communicate with new groups of people. And if you're going to create a brand that is a certain way that that only one one sector trusts, then that's all you're going to get. No right or wrong. It's just very predictable. So you tell me, is trust something that was is important to you? If so, what are you specifically doing to inspire people to feel safe with you? That's how I generally started tackling it. So I think that I think that's an excellent approach from the standpoint of addressing the the first thing that probably comes up, which is any resistance to like, is it important? And I think through the uh, through the act of causing them to examine themselves and think about their relationships and think about how they've gone through it and think about who they trust and all of that, it crystallizes it for people. How do you know that you're making progress in building trust? So I, it's funny because when I read the code of trust, when I went through it, I was I, like, I was so bought into it and I was so into the whole process. And the one thing that I kept worrying about. And and I don't know if you, I have a, I have a gut feeling that you might go through some of this too, but I'm constantly on, in pursuit of self-improvement and getting better. And when I read it, I was like, how do I make sure that I'm like the best at this? How do I make sure that I can build trust with absolutely everyone? Like, how do I measure it? How do I quantify my abilities? How do I do? And I think there's a part of me that feels like maybe there's just some things that don't need to be quantified in order to be a benefit in someone's life. But I also know that I don't know everything about this world of trust. And that's particularly the area that you traffic in. And that, that's what you coach people on. It's what you guide people on. It's what you've spent decades thinking about researching, trial testing scientifically out in the field. And I'm curious, what is your method for determining success in building trust? It's, 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 it's funny. It's amazingly simple. Like I try to make everything because I do not have a 50 pound brain. I really try to keep boiling. I love that you do that, by the way. I, you know, I'm always amazed by it because you'll come back with like, a, and it's like a this. And I'm like, God, why didn't you think of that? It's so obvious. I had that with a client. I had um, one of my clients currently. He said that last week. He goes, wow, you just really oversimplified that. That was easy. And so here's how you measure it. It's really, it's, it's, it's so funny. The first measure is when <laughs> people will come with, come to me with problems at work or problems with clients or all these things, but inevitably 
it all stems at their core and root people in their life that they're dealing with. And so most of the time I, I work with people that are having challenges with family members, because if you're, if you're having a challenge with forging trust or having a good, healthy conversation with someone at home, I guarantee you're not gonna be able to do it at work. And so inevitably someone, I'll, I always start a conversation with, so what's on your mind? And they'll tell me what's on their mind, which is generally strife or challenges at home or with an immediate family or something. I said, so tell me about that. And I said, well, what about that? I said, well, you told me what was on your mind. Let's work on that. And we'll talk about understanding the other person's context. Again, this is such a simple thing. So every time someone's having a conflict with anyone, either in their family, immediate family, or close neighbors, whatever it is, I always ask that one question. If they're having a challenge with someone, I said, so what aren't you doing to make them feel safe with you? From their perspective, from their optic, from their experiences, from the things they've experienced in life, from their generation, their gender, their orientation, their demographic, all these things, you're doing something to not make them feel safe when they're talking to you. What is it? And it makes them think. And they'll say, and they'll they have that kind of light bulb moment. And so this is when you know you're making a yeah. difference or not. So if someone is on the path and ready, they'll be thoughtful and you'll see them be thoughtful. And then we have a, a chat about it and they'll come up with a few things. I said, well, when's the next time you're going to chat with them? They say, well, I have a, I'll, I'll be meeting them later this week or tonight. Or so I said, all right, do that. Make them feel safe and own it. You know, and, and if you and say, and, and they said, well, what if they say, uh, are you just doing it? You know, I you went to a class and so now I said, yeah, trans be transparent. Say, yeah, I went to a class today and learned what an ass I am. I'm going to do really, I'm going to do my best I can tonight. Let me know if I'm on base or not. <laughs> You're making it about them. Yeah. And, and then the second thing is, are they curious? Are they asking you questions? When you get those two things, when you got the light bulb that goes off and they start having a dialogue about how to make people feel safe and what their, what their ownership of that is, because we always talk about you can't make anyone think a certain way. You can't make someone like you. You can't make someone trust you. What are you doing to not make them feel that way? Yeah. And, and so and, we start with their behavior and, and then that's it. If they're open to it, great. If not, okay, we'll just go on to something else. I love it too, because it, it creates such a simple opportunity, which is have conversations with the people that are important to you that are integral to your success or failure, whether that's at home or at work. And Constantly check in. I mean, maybe not to the point of being overbilling, but check in with them. Hey, do you feel safe around me? What what can I do to make you feel like you can flourish and thrive in my presence? Or any number of different ways you have that same sort of conversation. And when it gets to the point where the answer is, everything's great. I really love being around you. And I feel like I can do what I need. And I know that I can come to you if I need help and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's sort of like being in a room. You don't need to necessarily measure the amount of oxygen in the room to know that you can breathe or not, right? Mm -hmm. So in the same way in a relationship, you'll find out if you have enough trust in the relationship based on other things that are going on and whether or not you're getting what it is that you want. Yeah. So I appreciate the simplicity of the way of thinking about that because I, I found I was getting really hung up on the idea of like, well, do we need an assessment? Do we need, do we need some sort of a method of, of checking in on this thing or can it just be that this is, this is a, a, a thing that exists there. It's, it's the oxygen in the room. You brought up a, a a great point there. Do we need an assessment? Do we need these things? Um, and I've I've provided, matter of fact, my my books. Matter of fact, my first book, you know, ten techniques to quick rapport, is all about tools, techniques, and procedures in order to build rapport, to build trust. And 
I, I'm you hear me sigh now because yes, those things are important when you start your journey because they will start helping you get the repetitions or as I say, get the reps in to learn how to focus on others. The challenge with that is when you're focused on what you should be doing, every time you're thinking of what you're doing, you're missing what they are actually doing. And so yep. it, it's part of that dichotomy. I have I have finally gotten away. I've been able to let go of, without even consciously realizing it, let go of tools, techniques, and methods of and get those reps in because I became curious about words. Yeah. But I only I was only be able to become curious about words because I had the reps in. Well, it's like um that that uh, quote by Picasso that I think a lot of people misinterpret. It's a good artist copy, great artist steal. People think that means that like a great artist will just simply take it and claim it as their own. But no, what what he's actually saying there is that in the beginning to become a good artist, you copy what other people do. Yeah. But when you become a great artist is when you embody and it becomes your own, where the thing is no longer what it once was, but you've taken it and you've created and synthesized a new thing, right? And I really like this idea that in the beginning, you're following a rote prescriptive set mm -hmm. of patterns. You may be thinking through the framework, but at a certain point, it becomes part of you and the way that you interact with people and the way you think about things that it just becomes about making other people feel safe, as you said. And that's such a simple thing to boil it down that like you would think that at the beginning, it would be just figure out how you can make people feel safe. But it's almost like you have to evolve to that point by following all of the steps and getting the reps in so that you can get to the point where the simple answer is, do people feel safe around me? And it's dumbfounding. Yeah. I mean, Jeff, it has literally been, this has been probably most dumbfounding two years of my life. I, I have become so much more humble, so much more curious. And so curiosity can be re-sparked in people. I was not nearly as curious five years ago as I am today. I, I, I mean, just the humility skyrockets when you hit that level of understanding and those reps are in and the reps are saying, wow, I need to do even more of it. I mean, you be, literally become addicted, as you know, to consuming. Because someone asked me recently, what's the next book you're working on? I said, I have an outline, but I'm in, I cannot be in output and consume mode at the same time because I want to focus. And right now yeah. I'm still too much in consume, you know, and it's consuming, understanding others. It's, uh, it's addicting. <laughs> yeah. I, I a hundred percent feel you. I a hundred percent feel you on that. Well, Robin, I, I were, I know we're getting close to the end of our time here together for this interview, oh, but I, I, I know, right. It flies, <laughs> but I was just going to say, like, I feel like I could talk to you for three or four hours. It's, it's one of, you're one of those, um, unique and, and, um, rare opportunities to talk to someone where I feel like the time just flies by. It could be three, four hours. We could do one of those really long form ones, but uh, unfortunately present. we both have other things we have to do today. Mm -hmm. um, so I want to, I want to kind of wrap this up in a couple ways. The first is I want you to, if you could try to take what we've talked about here today and wrap it up in kind of a clear takeaway for someone listening that if they were to walk away from this episode, having listened to the whole thing, furiously scrambling, scribbling notes, or maybe they were listening to in the car and we just want them to be able to walk away with one big idea or one uh, summary of what we spoke about. What would you say is kind of the clear key takeaway of today's conversation? Yeah, easy. So let's start with all human beings want to feel safe. What are you going to do to make people feel safe around you? There's two things you can do to do that with anyone. If you're going to do it at work, this is really easy. 
figure out what people's jobs are and what you're going to do to make it easier. And not just do that, but now you're going to cascade on top of that without an ask. Do things and be of service to others without an ask, without a request, without an agenda. Be of service with no agenda. That's the first thing that's going to make people feel really safe. You get reps in on that, that creates great personal brand. The other thing we can start doing all the time is our language. Make the language you use about everyone else but yourself. And I have my four pillars that I'm always talking about. Is Number one is seek the thoughts and opinions of others instead of sharing your own. Two, talk in terms of their priorities, challenges, and pain points instead of your own. Three, be non-judgmentally curious and validate them with who they are. And four, empower them with choices. Each one of those things will make someone feel safe when they're around you. It'll be about them. Their brain rewards them. So the neuroscience just kicks in. So be of service without an ask and make the conversation about them. You get reps in doing that and your life is going to skyrocket. I love it so much. And and as you were going through them, I was I was like, I was with you the whole time. Yep, yep, yep. Mm-hmm. But when you get present them with choices, I'm just like, dude, that's it's just so good. So good. Well, Robin, where can people go and connect with you, find out more about you, hire you, shower you with praise, <laughs> be curious about you for once so that uh so you finally get a chance to talk about what you do. Where can people go and connect with you? Sure. My my one-stop shop right now is peopleformula.com, all one word, peopleformula.com. On there, I have a free course, which is my free keys of communication course. There is no web sale. The only links in that on the site are to my podcast as examples. So my podcast also is called Forged by Trust. We have great guests like Jeff on the show. We go into the backstory. We get a great story with actionable tools in life for how they learned how to forge their own trust. And so, again, free resources. But, yes, you can upsell it. I do personal coaching, keynote speaking, training, all those things. But there is no ask. If you have a question, if you have a challenge in life, if you want to reach out, uh, I am there and available. There you go. Peopleformula.com. Awesome. And let me just double underline, bold this, make it into a heading. But, like, listeners, seriously, go check out Robin. Check out his course buy his books. I'm telling you, Code of Trust. I just, uh, I'm on Mastodon. I left Twitter and I got on Mastodon and there's people talking about books and a hashtag called Bookstodon. And there was this one that came out recently. It was like seven books. It was like the seven books to get to know me. And Code of Trust is always on that list because it is just Mm. such a pivotal book. I put it up there with some of the greats, like, you know, we have a mutual favorite in how to win friends and influence people. So people that are out there, like I cannot, yeah, like I I really can't, I can't uh, emphasize this enough. Code of Trust is one of those books that will fundamentally change the way that you operate in the world. So, Robin, thank you for all the work that you do. I think you're fantastic. I have one more thing, though, that most important thing for any podcaster and anyone listening to Jeff's show, click like, share, leave a review. He puts in a tremendous amount of work to make this show happen, to bring you content with all these amazing people he has on to hopefully make your life a little bit better. So please click that like button, share it with others and get people to consume his amazing content. So do that for yourself and do it for Jeff. Uh, God, you just made me think I should ask all of my guests to do that. I, I didn't ask you to do that, but like I should really ask because I'm terrible at promoting myself. I'm the worst at it. <laughs> just I'm like, I like to make stuff like I just I like I'm a builder. I like to bring people on and have these conversations. I like to write. I just do this stuff, but I don't really promote it. So I really, Robin, thank you. I really appreciate it. And from one podcaster to another, that that's definitely super meaningful. I think your podcast is great. It's that's another one. It's on my it's on my short list of of must listen. So when you have time, yeah, when I have time, seriously. (laughs) 
Um, so last thing I want to end on this is um, lovable leadership. So um, when I say lovable leader, I know you've read my book. I know you know the concept. I know you're familiar with it and everything. When I say lovable leader, typically for for everyone that has had at least two jobs, maybe three, uh, they have someone in their mind or maybe that has a parent, uh, coach, teacher, someone in their mind, when they, when they hear the words lovable leader, they think of someone who exhibited leadership in a lovable way in their life. Someone who cared about their cared about them, cared about their success, who they trusted, that they felt that they could confide in, they could be vulnerable, they could be themselves. They had a high degree of trust and where they felt safety, where they felt like this person challenged them to do the work and be their best selves, reach their goals, but made it safe for them to do that, made it safe for them to fail, made it safe and help pick them back up when they needed it. So when I say lovable leader, I'm curious who comes to your head. And what I'd like to do at this point is I'd like you to just stop and think about who that person is. And I'm going to mute my mic. And I would like for you to speak directly to that person and just offer any thoughts, thanks, gratitude, anything that you have for the person in your life who comes up when I say the word lovable leader. I'm going to call my lovable leader. His name was uh, Colonel Mo Becker. He was a colonel at Paris Island that I worked for, and together we put together the Crucible, which is a culminating event in um, a Marine's life that's going through the boot camp at Paris Island and then at San Diego. And he was a great teacher, mentor, and guide at a time when I was finally getting it as a young captain in the Marine Corps before I got out. So thank you to him for asking great questions, for being a great teacher, mentor, and guide, for holding people accountable yet with a smile on his face and a positive attitude and a problem solver. So there you go. So tell me, what was most valuable or useful for you in this episode? Send me a message or hit me up on social media. I'm easy to find, but there's links in the show notes just to make it easy. Seriously, I'd love to hear from you. If you enjoyed this episode, there's a couple things you could do, starting with subscribing to the show. And after that, head on over to Apple Podcasts and rate the show five stars and leave a review. Consider sharing this episode with someone you think would enjoy it, or just buy me a latte or an old-fashioned by hitting up that tip jar. If you're looking for a good book to read, may I suggest The Lovable Leader, which covers how to build great teams with trust, respect, and kindness. It's built exclusively for brand new managers, and it's a handbook that will serve you well in your journey of leadership. Just search for Lovable Leader wherever books are sold online. And finally, if you're interested in working with me or checking out any of my other projects, go to jgibbard.com. That link, as well as every other link mentioned, will be found in the show notes. Stay safe, be kind, and seriously, share this episode with someone. I'll see you on the next episode of Shareable. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Shareable Podcast Network. Learn more at shareable.fm.